0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The
1: reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Fines Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. We really got a very special show for you today. We've got Jim Bullard, the President and CEO of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, on with us for the hour. It's after a big Fed meeting where they cut rates. Uh, But what's also exciting about our guest today is there was some dissent at the FOMC, and we're going to hear from James uh, what he thinks about what the Fed should have done and and why. Uh, Professor, uh, maybe we can start off with you, just some Quick comments. the F- the S and P 500 still close to an all time high. The uh, the market sort of uh, first dipped on the Fed comments, but then came back.
1: Right, um, and let me say how excited I am that James and has joined us. I think this is maybe the third time. What a timely uh, discussion we can have uh, after the meeting. I was on CNBC, and I, I gave a call out to 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 James thing. He's right. (laughs) Uh, I'm one of the supporters of the 50 basis points. We're going to get into that. Uh, Yeah, I think actually uh, the market first was a little worried about that dot plot, which indicated that more people didn't want to go really forward with another cut than did um uh and uh, then uh, I think what happened was in, in jay Powell's news conference that followed he, he was a little bit more flexible saying obviously if things do slow down and we see that we will move appropriately and I think that kind of encouraged the market and and that led it to sort of a big standoff uh on that day but you know this this is uh, the, the three dissensions that's rare um in fact, I don't even remember seeing two on one side of no cut. Uh, James, of course, on the other side with a with a more of a cut. I don't even remember that. So there's there is certainly a lot of discussion going on, um, and uh, we're also going to discuss because really the recent data has been coming in uh, quite a bit stronger than uh, many of us had uh, anticipated. So. You know, that's going to, you know, mix into our discussion about whether uh, really we do need uh, further cuts or not. So, um, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to, you know, start asking James questions right away.
0: Let's, let's, <laughs> uh, let's turn it over. Uh, issue. But um, so, Jim, I guess as I mean, you, you you came out with some commentary just explaining your dissent and your worldview, um, but the Fed cut 25. Maybe you could start with your your just overall look of the world and why you felt they should cut 50.
2: Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I always love these uh, discussions uh, when we get into them. Um, yeah, I dissented at the meeting. Uh, I put out a statement this morning, so listeners can go check that if they uh, want the full statement. But basically, it cited the idea that inflation and inflation expectations are quite low in the current environment. So that probably gives us room to maneuver uh, manufacturing and uh, industrial Types of companies aren't doing very well in the current environment. Uh, looks like they're in contraction mode, so I cited that. Uh, global growth is low. Uh, I think the trade war is having a large impact uh, outside the country and some impact inside the country uh, on sectors like the ag sector. And then you've got the uh, inverted yield curve. Uh, I don't think we have a good reason to have the policy rate in the U.S. be higher than almost all sovereign yields out to 10 years uh, across the G7. So um, we did lower at the meeting. I would have gone a little more aggressive at this meeting and then wait and see how the, how the data developed from there. But uh, the committee only wanted to go uh, 25 basis points at this juncture.
1: Yes, James. Uh, you know, let, uh, talking about that term structure, I'm I'm a worrier of that too, and I've I've gone on making uh, quite a few uh, pronouncements saying there's no reason the Fed funds rate, which is the most liquid asset in the world, should be higher than virtually any other a developed country's rate of any maturity in the world. It really it really should be lower uh... i remember on a previous show uh, you know you, you talking about the fact that you you've been sitting how many years now as uh... uh president of the st louis Fed, more, more than a decade more than a decade and and so you've seen other periods of time when there has not there has been an inversion and you told me that the fed staff came in and said oh don't worry about it this time and uh... Uh, I think you said to me, "Fool me once, fool me twice." You're not going to fool me three times. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, did that history come to play in the, you know, your your position this time?
2: Yeah, I think I've, I think we have talked about this before, but uh, uh, in the 2000 time frame, uh, the I, I remember distinctly being at a briefing here at the bank, and one of our economists said, "Well, the yield curve's inverted. Obviously, we're going into recession," and we all pooh-poohed it, and because the standard line at the Fed was, is to uh, always play down uh, yield curve inversion, and uh, sure enough, we were in recession in 2001, and then again in 2006, uh, right when chairman, former chairman Bernanke first came to uh, his position as chair, one of the first things he did was give a speech and say, don't worry about the yield curve inversion, this time is different, and within about 18 months, uh, the recession was on. So both of those gave me pause about, you know, whether we think our models are so informative that we should uh ignore market signals. So this time around I'd rather not ignore the market signal. I think you're right. There's no reason for the funds rate to be uh as high as it is in a world that obviously has extremely low uh nominal interest rates way out way out the yield curve the only reason to do that it would be if you thought you had an inflation problem but we don't really have an inflation problem if anything our inflation rates too low we'd like to get it up to target or even above target in the current uh environment and especially get inflation expectations higher i think the market is starting to doubt that uh... we want to uh... hit our uh... two percent inflation target so i'd like to see that improve
1: and i i think a key thing that you, you said is in the last recession, the financial crisis, it was a full year and a half later that it began. We're not saying it's going to begin next month or three months or even six months. There could be a considerable lag between it so you know those people were saying oh yeah we're seeing some strength now uh... hey this is a false alarm it's not necessarily a false alarm in in uh... in looking forward uh... you know and one could always argue about inversion and uh, using two-year ten-year fed funds thirty years I mean, all the rest but basically i think in the last fifty years really only been one real inversion or flattening and that was In uh, 1967, where it was not followed by a recession, so I mean it's a pretty good probably. Now I'm. This is another thing. There seems to be more reasons though today, and I'm not saying today is totally different, but that I think we may be seeing a flatter yield curve um, as a normal state of affairs. Uh, It seems like long treasuries have become a very favorite hedge asset of many holders. They move in the opposite direction of the stock market and risk assets. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, there's a tremendous demand for them, and that would tend to bend down uh, the curve. We might be seeing much flatter curves going forward than, you know, what we certainly experienced in the past. Have, have you given any thought to that issue?
2: Well, it's certainly possible that trading patterns are changing and the status of the U.S. 10-year is different than it was. Uh, I think that's always something you have to keep in mind. But you're right, the track record has been so good over the post-war era that I'm just reluctant to... Try to test some theory about why you think uh, yield curve inversion is all right this time. So I'd rather not try to test that theory. And we don't really have to. Inflation's below target. Inflation expectations uh, are below where we'd like them to be. So uh, we have some room to maneuver on this. I I would say one other thing about this. As you point out, uh, when you get into Uh, yield curve stories, then there are always different points on the yield curve that you can compare, and the 10-year, 2-year is one of the most common. That one hasn't quite inverted uh, on a sustained basis during this 90-day period here, Mm -hmm. and I take a little bit of heart there because the 2-year part of that spread is anticipating that the Fed will lower rates somewhat and it may be just enough to keep the inversion from occurring, and maybe just enough to keep us uh, out of the recession prediction that you would otherwise get from that. Um, so, uh, you know, whether the committee does that in a couple of different steps or is, you know does something more aggressive, like I was recommending at the, this last meeting, uh, the market kind of takes all that into account in the two-year, uh, part of the 10-year, two-year spread.
1: Um, I think what's also interesting, I don't know, for our listeners, um, and you have discussed this before, but I think you are perhaps the only FOMC member that uh, declines to give a long-run prediction of the Fed funds rate. Your feeling is that there's uh, two regimes. There's a a low-interest rate regime we're in, and there may be a higher one into the future. Uh, You don't know when we might or might not switch to that so therefore you leave that longer one out is that a correct characterization of, of of your predictions yeah that's a
2: good characterization i think if you look back over very long periods of time like 100 years you'll see that there are definite eras of high inter- you know higher interest rates on average and then other eras of lower interest rates on average and so I think you should take into account that uh you could easily switch, you know, between those um things like how fast is productivity growth, uh what are the demographics, uh changing status of uh various countries around the world, uh both in the size of their economies and the importance of their financial markets. So all these things matter uh when thinking about the uh, the longer run outcomes, and I think we'd be better off to admit that we're uncertain about those outcomes and just try to talk about the next two to three years.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. a, con- con- mm-hmm. a con- concept that we that the Fed often uses is called the neutral Fed funds rate. Sometimes the real long run real Fed funds rate, and all the evidence of all economists, including Fed staff, is that that rate has come down dramatically. Now, a, a rate that's kind of bantered about a lot is that half percent after inflation with a 2% inflation that gives you a 2.5% nominal rate. I'm beginning to think that it may be lower than that. It, it, is it I'm beginning to think that really the equilibrium real short-term real rate may even be negative at this time. Is this something that you've given some thought to? Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: I would say uh, one guess would be that it's zero, and it's there's some probability that it's less than zero yeah. in this environment, so that the neutral funds rate, you know, would be two percent or even less than two percent, yeah. and so that would suggest that our latest move only just barely got us, uh, you know, to neutral, um, yeah. or may, maybe just slightly accommodative. So, I do think that. Um, If you look at the short-term real rate in a very simple way, like just just look at the one-year Treasury nominal treasury yield and subtract off trailing one-year inflation, and you just plot that from the 1980s until now, and then don't try to feed that through any models or anything like that. Just try to draw a trend line through that. You're going to get something that looks like basically zero for a one-year real rate. Uh, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less than zero. I, I think that might be a more informative way to look at this than to try to feed it through a complicated model that has all kinds of other assumptions about uh, how the world works and how monetary policy well, works.
1: But, but Jim, if you actually do say one year, perhaps, is zero, then the three months or the Fed funds could be under that. Could minus even be there, yeah. I mean, we want some positive slope I think at that short end as a normal situation would you yeah I agree that? and uh the only reason I like to
2: use the one year is that you can use a one year trailing inflation and probably not do too much uh violence to the data and and that would the one year inflation is going to be a smoother object than uh, than if you tried to use three month or one month inflation
1: yeah I mean if you take a look at Europe I mean and, and, and it's true, Europe is growing slower, its GDP about one percent less, but its short-term real rates are minus one and a half, minus two. Yeah. at the yeah. present time. I mean they're much even if you compensate for the difference of GDP growth in the United States and, and Europe. Um, uh, you still don't get as high as <laughs> so it seems. The a, fed, something uh, else. Of, FOMC members. That's another way to think about the fact. It. I think it could really have dropped below zero. The the real short term um, Fed funds rate.
2: Yeah. Um, another factor for me. I guess I didn't mention earlier, but the. A lot of people have been pointing out that there's more than fifteen trillion in sovereign yields that are negative nominal today uh... and that seems to be growing i think we just have to face up to the idea that it's an extremely uh, low interest rate environment globally and u.s. yields can't get too far out of line from those global yields even though our economy is so much, somewhat better than uh... some other places in the world uh, that's not enough to allow, you know, hundreds of basis points in differential between the U.S. and other countries. Professor, that's let me exactly just reintroduce
0: uh, our guest here. We're, we're talking with Jim Bullard, who's the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, about his uh, dissent at the FOMC this week. With Professor Jeremy Siegel from Wharton on the line. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Jim, I just want to ask a quick question on when you when worried about these low rates, you know, the, the people who have kept it. Where they are, Um, you know, they're worried about. You're you're talking about an insurance cut. When you think about the inversion, do you think it's that the that it's it's forecasting we're getting into a recession, or that the inversion actually causes some of the recession, and that you know removing it is removing that risk? How much do you think is causal versus just a forecast?
2: Yeah. I guess I've studiously avoided this. I just said, well, it's a bearish signal uh, that seems to be pretty reliable over the post-war era, and I don't want to ignore this bearish signal. Uh, And since the Fed has a lot of influence at the short end of the curve, maybe we should take it seriously and try to align ourselves with markets uh, to the extent we can. So there are theories around that would say it's causal, uh, especially if you thought intermediation was disturbed by uh, an upside-down yield curve, Uh, you can't, uh, you know, uh, do the maturity transformation that you would otherwise be able to do and make money, and so that's one thing, is that you'd think there'd be a credit crunch and that might cause a recession uh... we're not really seeing that i would have to say in the in the credit data today but that would be one theory um, another theory is just you know super simple that the markets just see less growth and less inflation ahead than the fed and uh... because of that they're willing to price out the the longer end of the curve uh, at lower rates than the fed is
1: you know uh, james what's interesting those now if if i read the dot plot right um and these were of course projections before the meeting five members um did not want to lower at this meeting now only two dissented i mean and, and of course not all those members are voting numbers and in, anyway, but five, five said one and done <laughs> in a way. We're going well. It, there was one in the past, but that this is the end for this year. That's ten. Seven thought one more cut uh... between now and year end is appropriate. Now, uh, am I adding it up right? Then that it's it's ten to seven. Not <laughs> unless unless heads were turned at the meeting and in subsequent data going in to the next two meetings, Uh, there doesn't at all seem to be a consensus to continue to move on this. What is your reading on that? Um, Well, the uh, dot plot, I
2: think, has its limitations. Uh, One one issue for the dot plot is whether you should take on board what you think is going to happen at the meeting that you put the dot plot in. So the five people that said, "Well, no, no change in rates at that meeting," you know, I guess they were saying that their appropriate policy would be that you wouldn't lower the rate at that meeting. Um, others took the took the cut on board, but I'm not sure you uh, you can completely read, you know what they think uh, for the rest of the year, if they, if they just thought you should wait and see to, uh, how the data come in, or, you know, and, the, and then they were just projecting what their best case would be. So I think, uh, I think these are harder to read and probably provide less transparency than people sometimes think and I'll tell you having done them they're also harder to do than <laughs> than no. what you would think Well, well you, know,
1: it's you you know. guys had to do 2023 is that right? You yeah. Guys, yeah. Is that crazy? Does anyone have any idea what yeah. happened in yeah. 2023? Yeah. <laughs> no, realistically, I, think, I mean that's after <laughs> you bunch more after 6 months or 12 months it seems to me it's it kind of bunched to a long term or or yeah. some sort of uh, cyclical view of, of that. Um, but, I'm, I mean, certainly at discussion at the meeting could have, you know, changed some minds. But could you characterize the arguments of those that were against the cut? Of course, we have the two dissents, and they also dissented in the last meeting. Is it that th- that it encourages too much risk-taking, that they don't want to take this insurance cut? Um um, I'm going to say something else, because I, I, I don't know if you feel free to talking about it, but it is, hey, I don't want to appear that I'm just caving in to Donald Trump and what he wants to do, and and I don't see a lot of evidence to do that. Uh, I mean, what were, what were some of the issues that those that, that, that feared the cut uh, put forward, and how do you assess those issues?
2: Uh, I guess one thing I would say is that, Politics does not really come up at the meeting, and I think you can verify that by going to past transcripts uh, over the years. It's not, uh... you know, they're always technical arguments, and and it's it's very much based on the macroeconomics of the situation. Um, I those are five-year
1: legs. So yeah, we won't yeah. Find out twenty twenty-four. <laughs> no, but I think I think if you
2: look at how the committee has been behaved over the years that we do have transcripts, you know, you'll see that politics doesn't really enter those discussions. I don't think today is any different than then, but um, I would uh, I would hesitate to try to uh, characterize my colleagues' uh, views. So I think the thing to do there is just ask them. They will come out with speeches and interviews and stuff over coming days and weeks, and, and you can ask them what they're thinking. But um, for me, uh, I thought that uh, we should be... What I like to do is get get the policy rate to the point that we think it should be and then react to data going forward from there and i think we haven't quite been uh... as nimble as we could have been over the last couple of months uh... but we're still moving in the right direction and uh... i penciled in one more cut for the rest of the year although i'd reserve judgment as to how the data come in uh, between now and the meeting uh... and then I also think that these are insurance cuts so it's very possible that we've done enough uh, or will have done enough by the end of the year that when we get into 2020 uh the US economy will power turn out to power through uh you know maybe some of these sectors that are down today will recover somewhat and the economy will look good if that happens then we'll be in a position to take back these insurance cuts later And that's how we did it in 95, and again in 1998, and that was all very successful and really led to a much longer and very successful 1990s expansion. So that would be my hope for how this plays out uh, in the quarters ahead.
1: Right. Did you also mention a little bit uh, what – the repo market I mean the disturbances that we saw in that uh, this week which really I think took everyone maybe uh, even the Fed by surprise in fact I think that Jay Powell in his meeting uh, implied that they didn't expect it Um, let me let me ask a question uh, we know the banks have what's called an ample reserve system, uh, excess reserve, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillion of excess reserves. They were getting, you know, two fifteen, uh, two ten on that. Why, why didn't the banks step in and lend to the dealers and say, hey, listen, I can lend you the cash that you need to do that settlement? And instead of letting Were they just not set up to lend in the repo market? Was it just came on so suddenly? Shouldn't that have happened under an excess reserve uh, system? Could you give us your take of that?
2: Um, This issue is talking about volatility in short-term funding markets. Uh, There was a time, you know, years ago, which I'm sure you recall, uh, that uh... these markets would have been that volatile every day um... so (laughs) uh... so that's one thing to keep in mind i think they've been so tame in recent years that this this uh... turned out to be a headline event um... yeah we do have ample reserves uh... it sounds to me like there were special factors in the market uh... i think we're trying to learn more about that as time goes on here we you know there's some tax payments going on and and for for one reason or another uh, the matchup between uh, borrowers and lenders wasn't as smooth as it would have been on other days, um, and the, uh, the desk came in and, and uh, uh, injected some liquidity, and, and that seemed to work out fine. So I, I guess uh, this is something we can keep an eye on going forward, um, and one thing I've suggested in the past is that we should look at a repo facility to complement our reverse repo facility in my view that would bring us closer into an international standard on how this is done by other central banks uh but uh we've actually blogged on this some of our economists here and uh, listeners can look that up if they want but uh I, I think um, that's something that sh- maybe should be considered, and then uh, we wouldn't have to worry about this.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. So I, I just see this afternoon they've just posted uh, the Fed funds rate at 190 today, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is, am I right? It, it, that's actually 10 basis points over the interest on reserves, but but in the new range that they have. Um but you can you know this it it seems like you know in the earlier years you you got that interest on reserves almost exactly the same and now it's just been creeping up from that little tightness on that and you've been compensating by going down 30 instead of 25 to try to get you closer to the to the middle but do you think do you think that uh, I'm trying to understand the reasons why it isn't as tight as it seemed to be in those earlier years. Well, um, it, one
2: thing I guess what markets are saying is, well, there's less reserves than there were. Uh, so that's you know that's a factor. Reserves are down, you know, a good forty, fifty percent from off off their peak. But it's still an ample uh, reserves regime. I think these are special factors. The market is quirkier, you know, than it once was uh, because rates are so low and lots of institutions aren't trading there the way they, they would have uh, in the pre-crisis era, so it's not quite as thick of a market as you'd other, otherwise think. So I, I think we'll, we'll keep an eye on this. I think we have plenty of ways that uh, we could uh, address this situation.
0: Uh, and Jim, I was wondering when you think about where you see the path for appropriate policy going forward. Um, Professor Siegel has talked about well, the, the the Fed funds shouldn't just be fifty basis points. He wanted to to get cut the fifty. Not you know they shouldn't be fifty basis points above Fed funds, but fifty below. When you think the the longer run, how much the Fed needs to cut in this cycle? Do you worry? A, the insurance you know prevents you from for more later when, you know, if there is a much bigger recession since we haven't really seen it yet, um, do you worry going more sooner, it takes that ammo away? And then what do you think are the, the tools that, that you guys would consider after that?
2: Yeah, uh, if there was a really big shock, then we would have to lower rates down to zero and, and we'd have to consider unconventional monetary policy again. But I don't think that that's the situation we're in right now. What we have now is just some a, a pretty good overall performance of the U.S. economy, certainly great labor markets, good consumption growth. We've got some sectors, uh, industrial and ag, that maybe aren't doing very well, uh, partly because of the trade war. We've got slowing global growth. So we've got some downside risk in what is otherwise a, a high-performing economy. Uh, and so the, the idea here is to take insurance ag- out against the idea that uh, this downside risk uh, manifests itself in much slower growth in 2020. If all goes well, uh, that won't this, this insurance will pay off and uh, and we'll be able to power through the, uh, the downside risk. those risks will subside and we won't have any recession so, Uh, then we can raise the policy rate back up, and then we'd have plenty of ammunition for those that are concerned about that in the future. So I just think this is a good way of thinking about how to manage the risk for the U.S. economy. We do have uh, occasions in the 1990s where this worked very effectively, and I think we should play uh, this expansion the same way we played that one, and hopefully we'll get uh, even longer expansion than we'd otherwise
0: would now also you you mentioned sort of stopping at zero in in Europe, they have the negative rates, and you know one of the things I, I've seen some people starting to comment about I, I wonder if you've thought about this at all is having sort of a dual interest rate track where you can get rates that you would pay savers more positive numbers, and you might be able to provide banks lending at, at more negative numbers, let's say. And so that the TLTROs that the European Central Bank has might be one of those innovations that Draghi put in that can allow this sort of dual rate type of nature if they started hiking some of the, short, the, the sort of deposit type rates versus the, the lending rates. Any thought about a dual rate structure?
2: Yeah, I think we're a long ways from anything like this in the U.S., and my preference would be to stay away from those types of policies if we can. I think uh, they've only had mixed success in in Japan and Europe, and um, they have been innovative. I will give them credit for that in trying to think about different ways that they might be able to implement uh, negative rates. But also I think we should consider that the u.s. short-term funding markets are probably different from those in japan and europe and in particular we have uh, a large money market mutual fund uh, market and so uh, that's something else to consider
1: yeah and i and supporting your point i mean some of the structural differences, the European Central Bank, for instance, does not allow uh, vault cash to be used as reserves, so they can get that deposit rate negative because you can't substitute the zero-interest cash for it. So that's another major difference between the European system and and our system. Um, uh, coming back to the question of, of, you know, what's going on in the economy, you um, Things did look, uh, you know, a week and a half ago pretty scary when that uh, uh, the ISM uh, number came out under 50 for the first time in three years, and the components were really weak, and we saw the 10-year the go down to about 140, 45, and things looked tipping. And then in the last 10, 12 days, really very surprisingly good economic data. Uh, We saw uh, both Bloomberg uh, um, um, and Citibank's uh, economic surprise indicator for the U.S. actually uh, hit uh, a 12-month high. Um, Have you been surprised by some of the strength that we've been seeing and some of the recent data we've been getting?
2: Well... Not really, because I think we have a very strong labor market which is underpinning uh, good consumption growth in the u s and household sector, you know that generally speaking is doing well. but around that, we have the trade war going on, we have businesses that are partly dependent on income from overseas uh... the overseas uh... growth rate is slowing possibly precipitously europe in particular uh... looks like it might be teetering on recession so uh... also china much slower than uh... Than would have been otherwise predicted so it's not surprising that you would get good numbers that are related to domestic factors that aren't too far from, uh, you know, household spending here in the U.S. But nevertheless, you would see other companies that are global operators uh, doing poorly, and sectors that are directly affected by the trade war, like agriculture, doing poorly, and. And so you've got disruption going on in some parts of the economy, but good times
1: in other parts of the economy. So you're going to see a mixed message from the data, I think. You know, to your point, one of the very few differences of the statement in in this latest one compared to the previous one was you added exports uh, to business spending as one of the weak points in the economy. Um, so your your point, I think, is certainly well taken on those exports. Getting back to the labor market, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, maybe the long-run neutral is much lower than, you know, what is being bandied about now and lower than what the Fed uh, puts down. Another variable that seems to me out of line, let's go back to the labor market, because that certainly is key. And And you go to long-term unemployment, and uh, the Fed still thinks that number, that neutral unemployment rate, is is well above four um, percent. To me, I think that's out of line. The way the real rate is out of line. I mean, we've we've been under four percent now for well over a year. There's you know virtually no inflation in the labor market. Why uh, is is that another perhaps disconnect, uh, James? On on and, and, uh, the real economy?
2: Yeah, I think uh, just generally speaking, regardless of what, where you think this U star is, um, the evidence that there's a lot of feedback from labor markets to inflation has become very, very weak over the last two decades. And I think not everyone maybe has taken that on board. Um, so just because you have a low unemployment certainly does not mean in a mechanical sense that you're going to have higher inflation. So I think we have to look elsewhere for our signals on what's going to drive inflation higher. And inflation expectations are one of the key variables that comes out of more modern theories. So that's why I've tried to focus on uh, market-based expectations of inflation, as uh, one indicator that the Fed can use to try to understand where inflation is going to go in the future.
1: Actually, I think your point, and you made that at one of our previous discussions, was, was just excellent. One of the reasons for the flatter Phillips curve that we've had is how stable inflationary expectations have been. Yeah. Um, and when they're unstable, uh, you will get a much more uh, vertical type of curve. I mean that's you know that that I think is a really good point. Yeah, I think the
2: the empirical evidence is kind of averaging things that happened in the 70s and 80s with things that happened in the 90s and 2000s and in the most recent decade. And but what has really happened is that inflation expectations were unstable in the earlier era and therefore you saw a correlation between labor market Um, outcomes and inflation, but today you don't see that anymore, and so it's much harder to take a signal from the uh, performance of labor markets and translate that directly into what the inflation outcomes are going to be. So I I think, uh, you know, whether we should lower the you know, the U-star or not yeah. is, not really, it as well, as I is not really, uh, It's whether you choose uh, kind of 4.5% or 4% or 4.2%, the point is that whatever that gap is, uh, it's multiplied by a tiny number these days. And mm-hmm. so the, the feedback to inflation is just much lower than it used to be.
1: Do you think it, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't I know that it's anonymous what it is, but you think it could be less than 4% today? Or you're just saying it's just not that important because that's not a measure of pressure on the market that could cause inflation?
2: Yeah, you're you're multiplying a gap by a a small number. So whether you move the gap up or down, it's not going to matter. It's multiplied by a small number no matter what you do.
1: You know... I'd like to turn to the fact that we we still have two openings um, uh, on the Fed, and uh, your director of research, uh, Christopher Waller, is one of Trump's nominees. Um, uh, and, and let me let me ask you this question: um, uh, I, I you know Trump has also been wants aggressively to move down rates. He knows your on that side actually i'm on that side um do you think that uh, he said well let's get someone else from uh the st louis fed uh that might think the same way uh uh is, do you have are you given any thought to that potential in terms of the nominee and do you want to speak a little bit about your your director
2: yeah, I think Chris Waller will be a, a great addition to the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. He, uh, I think you know a little bit about him, but he was a professor, chaired professor at Notre Dame for a decade or more. He's been, I hired him here to be the research director. He's been here for more than a decade. He's been to uh, most of the open market committee meetings over the last ten years so he has plenty of experience both as uh... in the world of monetary theory but also in the practical world of actual policy making so i think he'll be a really great uh... addition to the board of governors and so far his nomination seems to be going well and uh... proceeding along uh... they'll uh... hopefully he'll be able to get a hearing Soon and and uh, get the Senate to see if they does can support share his nomination. But that, I, think I think my he'll be concerns great. Yep.
1: on the term structure of uh, in, in the inversion. What's that? Um, Sorry. Does does he share our concerns about the term structure and the inversion, and that that should be a major factor input into the the, the decision making of the uh, the board? Uh,
2: well, I can't really for what chris's policy views will be uh obviously we've worked together a lot and everything but i think he's also a uh, very astute economist he's going to have his own views as well some of those will probably come out in a hearing uh another thing you can do for those uh listeners that might be interested is he has a long track record of having written blogs and papers and uh... articles for a review and all kinds of other things so if you want to get a flavor of his views you certainly can he's he has a long written record
1: you know traditionally the board uh... has gone with the chairman i'm trying to think of the last time when a board member has dissented um, as, as our listeners might know, the three dissents, yours and, and, and the two others, were from the bank presidents and not from the board. Um, I've always thought there should be a little bit more independence on the board. I'm, I'm always welcoming that. Uh, uh, you think Waller could bring that uh, uh, independence, or it seems that, oh, I'm going to fall in line with uh, the chairman. What, uh, how, how do you feel on that?
2: Well, I wouldn't want to prejudge uh, how he's going to vote because I don't know, uh, but uh I will say this, uh, we actually did a study here at the St. Louis Fed about the history of uh dissents on uh the FOMC since 1936 mm-hmm. how about that and uh There were hundreds of dissents uh, over that time period, and if I recall it correctly, roughly half of them were from presidents and the other half were from governors. So I think the story that... Maybe more
1: recent years. I don't know. I I I think in uh, recent
2: years that hasn't been as as much the case, but um, the the history of it is that... uh, the dissents could come from every anywhere, and and they have in the past, and and so I think uh, we should keep that in mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you have any opinion on uh, Trump's uh, other nominee, Judy, Judy Shelton, for the uh, remaining open position on the board? You know, I, I don't know her very well.
2: I did meet her at a conference in Paris last year uh... She seemed very nice, uh, but I, I just don't know her very well as an economist. Uh, she does have her own writings, her own track record, and I think uh, if people are interested in interviews, they can go check that out.
1: You know, we're talking about these two board members. Openings have been open for a long time. In fact, I I don't remember when the seven-member board has had its full complement. Do you think that we need some structural changes in how the Fed operates or is structured and I'm not talking about your criticism because I think basically you guys have done a great job I'm just thinking of 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 ways to get the full complement that uh, the the balance between the the, the presidents and the board etc has that been discussed or do you personally have any ideas in that direction um I,
2: I would say that it's it's probably not the, the... I agree with you that there have been a lot of openings at the Board of Governors, but what I would say about that is it's the Senate uh, and the administration and the White House, uh, not just this administration, but but over the last 30 years or so, that process has slowed down dramatically, and it has it means that there are a lot of openings all around the government and um... i think that's not healthy for the country i think we should find a way to you know definitely allow the senate to have their input on uh, various appointments but get a snappier process so that you can get people into these key jobs and allow them to go ahead and and try to shape policy uh... going forward but both parties, when they're in the minority, uh, try to slow it, slow the process down dramatically, and this takes up all the Senate's uh, time. So it's it's really going, you know, it goes very slowly, and it's hard to fill uh, key positions.
1: You know, one one some have commented on the fact that the board members, I mean, the compensation is fixed by Congress, and it is well below the compensation that people with financial expertise uh, have. Uh, So even many of those who are selected to the board will stay there for two or three years to burnish their resume, so to speak, and then go back to the private world. Uh, Generally, I think you bank presidents have even a better uh, salary than do the board members. Do you think that that's one of the the structural changes that may need to be addressed to get the, the full complement?
2: Yeah, I, I think the issue of uh, how much uh, governors get paid is, is wrapped up in the entire issue of uh, uh, pay all around the cabinet and everywhere else. If I recall correctly, this has not been revisited since the 1990s. And of course, it's always a really touchy uh, political topic, so I'm not sure we'll get a look at this anytime soon but I do think that this is um, an important issue. you want the compensation to be appropriate for the job that you're asking people to do and you want it to compete with uh, equivalent job in the private sector. I'm not sure that we're in that situation, although I admit I haven't really done a, a study of this or anything. Some people think it's all way too high, so uh, I know that too, but, um, but
1: of course, I, I, do, know, think, I do, do think the, the governmental bank over a million dollars, because they say we want to get as good a person as the head of the bank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so,
2: you know, I, I just don't think there's, it doesn't seem like there's anything on the horizon to change this uh, anytime soon.
1: You know, the, you know we all know the the central bank our Fed 1913, it was divided into 12 districts, um, uh, uh, basically uh, related to population. Back then, well, in the last 110 years, a lot of things have changed. Of course, I mean, uh, the, you, is there is, should there should there be a change, or we're, we're stuck with the 12 districts, and that's. Going to be there, uh, the balance between the 12 bank presidents and the seven, to give you the 19 on full complement. Uh, I mean, I guess politics are such that there may be no hope in today's world of changes. But if you had an ideal, what, how would you envision the central bank to be structured to give the best outcomes for economic policy?
2: Yeah, I like to think of the. uh, The decentralized Fed uh, is really a brilliant solution uh, because what the founders were facing was the fact that the first two central banks in the U.S. failed. And Andrew Jackson campaigned vociferously against the second bank in the United States and eventually won and closed that down. So when it came time to have uh to try again with a central bank, they decided that they would spread the central bank out across the country and I like to think of it as a, you know there's a Washington component which is the board of governors and they they very much uh, are oriented inside the beltway. There's a main or a, I'm sorry, a Wall Street component in New York and of course New York is the financial capital, so that's very important. But there's also a Main Street component with the other 11 banks across the country. And I think it's been very important to give the rest of the country some input on these important matters. Otherwise, uh, people will feel like the East Coast is controlling um, financial interests, which. Uh, is already enough of a uh worry uh inside the US and has historically over our the history of the Republic has been a, a a major issue. So I think it works best if each part of each portion of that triangle plays its role to the hilt. So the, the Wall Street part has to really speak up for those issues the, the inside the beltway part has to speak up for those issues but the main street part also has to speak up and uh, play its role in uh, formulating uh, these important policies and then between those you get really good outcomes so I actually think it's a brilliant design
0: Professor, I think we have just final one minute here. I want to get one final question. And, Jim, as, as you think about, you know, you were dissenting on this insurance policy. If you said there's one you know, risk to the upside for the economy in, in 30 seconds, any sense what would make the economy do better than you were expecting?
1: Uh,
2: well, uh, it could be that we're just overestimating uh, the impact of the trade war, and it won't be nearly as large. And in that case... Uh, uh, we might want to take some of these insurance cuts back, but um, right now that's not what I'm thinking. But it's possible that we could go in that direction.
0: Professor, any closing thoughts from you? Final thirty seconds. No,
1: I, I, I really value everything that you said, and uh, I, you know, independent voices at the Fed are, are, are important, and it was it was good to have yours at the last meeting. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. I appreciate it.
0: Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates.